cover to cover, so please stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. Chomping at the bit there, yes. Out of the starting gate, minute early. Uh, oh well, never mind. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today's April twelfth, two thousand and five. Oh, last night I was trying to calm down and look at the world, you know, in a bright, bright new light. And then I heard that Andrea Dworkin had died. That did it. Finally, a funeral that made me care. I tried to write down my personal reflections on this woman, on Andrea Dworkin. Those will air on Thursday morning at eight twenty on the morning show here at KPFA. Andrea Dworkin spoke truth to power, flew in the face. Of things as they are, yes, not played upon a blue guitar, boys and girls. Andrea Dworkin was not a strong woman physically or emotionally. It was her mind, her mind that flew. It's my belief that the reaction to her work, the backlash to her life, her very existence, is what killed her at the age of fifty-eight. When the critics and the public screamed at her for what they called her、uh, male bashing, right? Male bashing. <laughs> She answered. She said, "I simply report what men do." Of course, <laughs> if you look all around, all over the world, that's what、uh, what's going down, you know. And if you report it, I suppose.、Uh, Can get you killed. A man's inhumanity to man is equaled only by his inhumanity to woman. The battle for men's minds is very often fought on the field of women's bodies. I think about that a lot. I think of the attacks on Hillary Rodham Clinton beginning already. Yes, escalating again. Well, beginning. They've always been there, but there's a chance. That Hillary will run for president, and already, yes, they're gearing up, saying, you know, stop her before she starts. I hope that Hillary has the strength to do battle with these neocons, these rapture Republicans, messianic militarists. This conflict we are witnessing is worthy of the Greek playwright <clears throat> Euripides. It's a drama, perhaps even a Greek tragedy. I suppose, well. Bill Clinton says we should speak of it as、uh, the forces of right and wrong. The right wing 
uh, likes to reduce the struggle, well, they like to, to call it a struggle between good and evil. Now, that is, of course, the very retro vision, always the Western uh, Western mythos of war and warriors, you know. For some reason, I listen for hours to these neocons, and they can't, they can't seem to function, think, speak, act without an enemy. It's always, where do we attack? Who do we blame? You know, what, what, uh, just show me, yeah, just, <laughs> yes, just send in the Marines. Where, where, send in the Marines. The modern mind, dare I call it a feminist mind, an eco, yes, the eco warriors, those of us who are trying to imagine something different, uh, it's not so simple. It's not just a question of whom do you defeat, you know. Killing your enemy is not freedom. Freedom has to be created. Liberation has to be uh, imagined. Andrea Dworkin tried to use her pen to make people think. Uh, her rhetoric, her polemics infuriated critics and they got her into big trouble I think that the world crushed this woman uh, particularly uh, locals will remember her stand on pornography that's when that's when they all ganged up on her as most of us know male sexual arousal is a sacrament especially for certain liberal types and when Andrea suggested that pornography was kind of depressing <laughs> and that it was perhaps an assault on women's civil rights, uh, that was the end. Now, pornography, as you know, is simply a pornograph, is the graph or picture of a whore, um, that is, of a female serving a male subservient to that's what a whore is uh, erotica is something else now erotica is all about shared ecstasy it's an egalitarian kind of a thing you know but erotica in our culture it's mostly for the elite you know it's esoteric and arcane uh, our movies our little TNA stuff on television that's basically uh a pornographic mindset, and uh, it is kind of depressing. Uh, on the other hand, I think that Andrea hit the wall when she tried. She tried to make people think about it. Uh, uh, let me read you a little bit of something from the London Observer. Back in May of 1987, long, long ago, it's a book she wrote called Intercourse, and the review has a mixed opinion here. Yes, but the London Observer doesn't simply attack her. They try to understand her. The review is by Galen Strawson, and it's uh, a review of a book Andrea Dworkin wrote called Intercourse. Even in England, you know, they got on her case. The reviewer writes, Andrea Dworkin is a feminist and a gifted polemicist. Her pen is mighty. In this new book, Intercourse, right, she assaults the subject of sexual intercourse under nine headings. Repulsion, skinless, 
stigma, communion, possession, virginity, occupation, collaboration, law, and dirt slash death. Her language is loud and stylish and very strong, intensely energetic, and curiously double-edged. She is extremely blunt and extremely sharp. She rants with nuance. She is reliably alarming. She is clever and liberated. And yet, as the book wears on, she makes some increasingly loopy and sexist claims. My footnote here says, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. <laughs> talk about rhetoric. Talk, talk about hyperbole. Andrea was a wonder. Okay, a little more of the review. The reviewer says, intercourse has no strongly unifying thesis. Thank God, yes. Andrea Dworkin was always all over the place. She goes on to say, Dworkin leaps into her topic from many different angles, using literary and historical examples ranging widely. In Skinless, she discusses the Japanese writer Kobo Ebi, that's spelled A-B-E, I'm sure I mispronounced it. It's about the desire for sexual union that makes even the skin seem an irksome barrier. In Virginity, she begins with Joan of Arc, moves on to Flaubert's Madame Bovary. She develops the idea that it was only in committing adultery that Emma Bovary really lost her virginity, passing from the inviolateness of marital duty into true carnality. Hmm. I'll buy that. Oops, pardon me, I'm interrupting again. In Repulsion, Andrea Dworkin comes down hard on Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy stands both as the accused and, along with his wife, Sophia, as the principal witness. Dworkin's judgment is deeply inadequate, but characteristically direct. She writes that Tolstoy's repulsion for woman, quote, is a goose-stepping hatred. Well, <laughs> Dworkin believes that he revealed all, that he hated Sophie because he had intercourse with her. <laughs> now, there was more to the Tolstoy's marital disorders, yes, but no doubt Dworkin has uh, a part of the truth. In Dirt Slash Death, she develops the familiar suggestion... That repulsion, that is fear of uncleanness, may lurk eliminably in the male attitude to heterosexual intercourse, and may indeed be an essential constituent of male desire. But here, as always, when sex is the subject, it seems that the only safe generalization is that every other generalization is false. This thought is confirmed by Dworkin's description of sexual intercourse, quote, It is intense, often desperate. The internal landscape is violent upheaval, a wild and ultimately cruel disregard of human individuality, a brazen, high-strung wanting that is absolute and imperishable, not attached to personality, no respecter of boundaries. Okay, footnote here. <laughs> I think she's got it. Sexuality is something that uh, 
We are not able to understand fully any more than we are able to understand the mysteries of our universe and our world. This reviewer goes on to say, This may be the whole truth for some, but certainly not for all. One should never generalize from one's own case. When Dworkin claims that intercourse, quote, is the pure, sterile, formal expression of men's contempt for women, well, it sounds more like bad luck than good psychology. Yeah, I go along with that, right, okay. So is there some intrinsic inequality implicit in the mere mechanics of heterosexual intercourse? Dworkin is interestingly uncertain about this old question. She holds that... Intercourse and women's inequality are like Siamese twins. Always in the same place, at the same time. Oops, here's a word I can't use on the air. I'll just say, urinating in the same pot. <laughs> yes, boy, has she got it right. Intercourse and women's equality, inequality are like Siamese twins. I thought about that last night. I was watching this wonderful TV show that I love called Deadwood. And there's a sadist. He manages a murder. Two young um, prostitutes and the madam. Uh, she's a bad lady, the madam, because she's, uh, she's trying to blackmail him. She wants him to kill the young women so she can get $100,000 uh, and more. And then uh, she comes at him with a gun. And so he cuts her throat, too. But... Uh, I thought, yes, indeed, yes, indeed, always in the same place. Um, can I say, well, I won't say it on the air, urinating in the same pot. Uh, right, it does seem to be, what is that? Uh, there is a connection between sex and violence, at least in our culture. Andrea Dworkin argues classically that, well, it's simply a matter of cultural attitudes to the act. I mean, why, she asks, why should the male be seen as possessing the female rather than as possessed by her, you know? Entry is also enclosure, and so on, so on. But she seems unsure about the force of her argument. Yes, the reviewer is going on here to say uh, that Andrea is, of course, thinking out loud on the page. God bless her. Anyway. She later remarks that women are unspeakably vulnerable in intercourse because of the nature of the act. Uh, end quote. Andrea Dworkin is also fully aware that the moral consequences of this are by no means obvious because there are fierce pleasures sought after by both sexes, fierce pleasures in being possessed. In Stigma, Dworkin discusses Tennessee Williams. In Communion, she discusses James Baldwin. In Possession, uh, Isaac Beshevis Singer. When not spoiled by exaggeration, her critical elaborations can be rich and vivid. But in the second and more directly political half of the book, things deteriorate. Rhetoric overrides sensibility, and the air of conceptual confusion thickens. <laughs> I remember back in the 1970s, I'm interrupting again, when uh, the great feminist Kate Millett published a book called Sexual Politics, um, and the critics came down on her. 
like hornets. Um, even her own colleagues turned on her uh, in sexual politics. She uh, pretty much, well, let's say, she hung Henry Miller up there next to D.H. Lawrence and uh, she pointed to the misogyny in literature. I thought it was a kick. And of course, it's simply her point of view, her way of seeing her perception of reality. But I remember Kate Millett winding up in the local psychiatric hospital, uh, pretty much broken-hearted. Uh, yes, broken-hearted. Let's see. Um, let's finish up this little bit um, from the London Observer, back when Andrea Dworkin published her controversial book, Intercourse. Uh, it was, of course, a polemic. It was rhetoric. Um, remember Norman Mailer writing his book? <laughs> yes, The Prisoner of Sex got a kick out of that. I remember his book was very deep, very complicated, Prisoner of Sex. I remember at the end he came down to the statement that if um, sexual equality meant he had to do the dishes, well, nuts with it. <laughs> I liked his honesty. Anyway, Andrea Dworkin's chapter on laws governing sexual behavior is finely barbed with examples of past discrimination against women. History teems with them. The list is endless, you know. Uh, the reviewer says that this uh, chapter is psychologically crass in its one-track interpretation of the examples implying that the sole motive of all sexual legislation is the perpetuation of male dominance. Ha! She says, it's naive in its assessment of the current position in Western democracies, right? Uh, she's angry, the reviewer is angry, because there was no sign of John Stuart Mill's um, work uh, the, on liberty. She wanted him to to be in there, yes. Hearts, law, liberty, and morality uh, was not to be found in Andrea Dworkin's bibliography. The bibliography has more than a thousand books listed. Take your pick. Um, the reviewer decides that the psychological crassness is forced. <laughs> then she goes on to say how much she does admire the writer's style. Um, and she goes on to uh, point out that all of this rhetoric, this so-called hostility or male bashing, is uh, simply um, a style of, it's formal, you know, uh, strictly political, detached, and that uh, basically Andrea Dworkin is uh, empathetic, that she uh, sympathizes with males. This is what I found when I met the woman. She's terminally heterosexual. I've never seen anything like it. Um, this reviewer goes on to say this hidden sympathy is one of her strengths. And that, of course, as Virginia Woolf used to tell us, to be man-womanly and woman-manly, that's the only way we can get anywhere, um, rather than projecting all the uh, negatives onto the other sex. We must try to understand one another. Uh, this reviewer seems to think that Andrea Dworkin hasn't given that side of things enough voice um, and that she yields, Andrea Dworkin yields to passionate absolutism. Well, well, yes, she says there's no doubt that the possession, the position, oh dear, 
Possessions, possession, yes, Freudian slip. The position of women justifies quite a lot of polemic, although it can be self-defeating, yes. Uh, she goes on to say that since Dworkin has got the balance wrong, she won't be understood. And as a result, she says, this book is less good than it could have been, and she goes on to speak of the flaws of the exaggeration, yes, uh, I keep thinking that like the male misogynist, Andrea Dworkin is deeply, deeply subjective. She was trying to make a point. And of course, she flew in the face of uh, the world. Thursday morning, I will speak of her again, uh, the times I met her and uh, what happened to her when she came here to Berkeley. Uh, it is... Such a melancholy, such a melancholy end. Uh, such a brilliant woman who should have been nurtured, should have been cared for, should have been taken in and understood. Uh, loved, supported. Um, she has a little book called The New Woman's Broken Heart, which I recommend to you. If I can find it, I looked for it last night. I will read it here on the air soon. Uh, let me recommend to you just um, a couple of other items. For those of you who were kind enough to write into me saying that I was uh, dismissive of the Pope. Yes, remember Pope John Paul. Mm -hmm. Old news. Uh, Twenty-five years is a mighty long time. A quarter of a century almost. Let's see. He was elected uh, Pope in 1978. So that's 25, 26, 27 it was around for a long time, and it's no good kidding ourselves. The vicar of Christ has the ear of millions and millions and millions of people. Somebody said it could be as many as a billion. I'm not sure about that. But uh, I keep reminding myself that in our search for perfection, sometimes we miss the good. And, of course, John Paul certainly had his upside. We know that. I didn't mean to be... Uh, uh, too flippant about the Pope. Uh, several people have told me that he reminded them of their fathers. Yes. <laughs> they didn't look anything like my father or act like him, but he did do his political duties, certainly as a young man. What was it? By Christmas night in 1991, as Pope, he, uh, he was an ally of Gorbachev's, yes. Gorbachev agreed to the dissolution of the empire. If you want the final word, what I consider the final word, certainly not for Catholics, but the last word on John Paul II, I would read David Remnick. David Remnick is the editor of the New Yorker magazine, and he wrote a very, very nice obituary in the April 11th issue. It's in Talk of the Town. And, you know, it covers the the years when the Pope was a playwright and uh, an actor. And uh, he talks about all the good stuff, the, uh, the outreach, the uh, peacenik stuff. You know, the Pope was certainly a critic of these wars. And um, he says, yes, uh, he says there is a temptation to myth-making, 
and perhaps to Western self-satisfaction, the Pope's critique of materialism did not end with his opposition to communism. It carried over to his critique of the Western world and of consumer culture. Yes, the decline of the Catholic Church in Europe, too. He knew about that. I kept thinking when I looked at the Pope, I thought that the Pope did understand what Allen Ginsberg calls Moloch, the god of materialism, the god of greed. I thought about that, and I thought at least John Paul understood that that part of modernism was ugly. Uh, let's see, what else does David Remnick say? He says his papacy lasted 26 years, his legacy as spiritual leader, cultural critic, thinker, politician, performer in the media age, and in his last days a man determined to provide an example from his own visible demise, is so encompassing that no obituary will make complete sense of it. Because I think it was noble of the Pope to fall apart in public. I think that was... Uh, no Pope has done that before to show us the human, the human side of things. You know, if he's a stand-in for God on earth, well, uh, now people know that the Son of uh, God is definitely uh, uh, going to decay and dissolve. Um, the Pope's awareness of his own consistency provoked in many people contradictory reactions. Okay, the contradictions were many. And David Remnick goes on to talk a great deal, you know, about these these campaigns against the death penalty. And then, of course, he turned around and uh, his stand on birth control brings all those, um, let's see, all those deaths to our attention. Yes. He left the power, yes, in the hands of the Vatican neoconservatives. He failed to act persuasively on crises ranging from AIDS to the sexual abuse by the priests. I listened to Bishop Tutu the other night saying, they were asking Bishop Tutu who he would want to be the next pope, and he said he didn't care what race or color the fellow was, that he would like someone uh, in the line of John the Twenty-Third. you remember the fellow that presided over Vatican II in 1962. Of course, uh, those hopes were disappointed when, uh, in 1962, we, we really thought that the church was going to uh, become modern. Uh, actually, the number of Catholics has declined considerably, not in Poland, of course. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think... I think that most of the people who um, are willing to look at the good can acknowledge that the Pope uh, pretty much held the fort. I, of course, in my heart of hearts, cannot forgive his conservative point of view on women. To me, the women would save the church, would give it legitimacy. Um, certainly, uh, it is a woman's role to comfort the sick, um, to mourn for the dead. It is uh, their role since the beginning of time. And, of course, uh, they would modernize, that is, they would uh, humanize the church. Uh, this business of celibacy, of course, is nonsense. Celibacy was always all about keeping the property inside the church. It's always about the money, follow the money. Now, actually, 
What I wanted to do today, and I've run out of time, I wanted to wind up with with uh, the philosopher Voltaire. You remember the philosopher Voltaire, the one who said if there were no God, it would be necessary for us to invent him. So I'm going to say Voltaire for next time because uh, he's my answer to, uh, what is that, a worldview, a world uh, view that is something somewhere in between the Buddha, <laughs> the Buddha and George Bernard Shaw. Uh, I'll be back on the air Thursday morning to talk about Andrea Dworkin, my personal feelings about her. Uh, that's at 8.20 Thursday morning. Until then, this has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Free speech is under attack. Tuesday, April 26 at 7 p.m., leaders in the African, Arab, Filipino, and indigenous communities will join human rights attorney Lynn Stewart and all those who stand up for the rights of oppressed peoples. You're invited to participate in this benefit for the Uhuru movement and Lynn Stewart's defense at the Humanist Hall, 390 27th Street in Oakland. For more information, call 510-625-1106. A $20 donation is requested, but no one will be turned away for lack of funds. KPFA's Hard Knock Radio and the mobilization to 